Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why? But this is something a bit different. It's a condensed version. It's our favourite conversations about tricky subjects, revisited and reduced into bite-sized chunks. And I can honestly say it's one of the most disgusting experiences of my entire life. It's making me want to gag thinking about it. And I haven't been able to eat eggs since. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast is all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week we're going to be talking about sex. My guest today is a highly specialised clinical psychologist and certified psychosexologist, easy to, not that easy to say, and is recognised as a national expert in the theory and practice of therapy around all aspects of sexual wellbeing and function. She's also the author of Mind the Gap, the truth about desire and how to future-proof your sex life. So, without further ado, let me introduce you, Dr. Karen Gurney. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Oh, pleasure. I'm really, really glad to, to do this. We managed to have a really good chat at our mutual friend Helen of the Scummy Mummies and author of uh, Get Divorced, Be Get Happy. Get Divorced, Be Happy. We Got did. There. That was a great night, wasn't it? It was like the first kind of. Uh, tiptoeing back into real life and it felt so nice didn't it it really did how did you get into this field of work and and what was yeah what did you want to do with it when you started or what are your ambitions well it's interesting actually because when I was doing my doctorate in clinical psychology so it's a bit like a medical doctor you do an undergrad degree as a psychologist you do a couple of years working in relevant fields then you do a three-year postdoc where you rotate around different specialties I I didn't have any desire to work in this field until I was due to do a specialist placement in another area. It was actually going to be adolescent eating disorders. Um, mm. And my placement supervisor got pregnant and couldn't take me on placement. So at the last minute, they were like scrambling around to find me this year-long specialist placement, my final year. And they said, what do you think about sex? And I was like, yeah, I mean, sounds good. Like, it's never boring, mm. is it? Interesting. So let's give it a go. And... Um, that really opened my eyes to the perfect specialty for me. And I've been working in the field now, I'm qualified in 2004. So that's like, I don't know, 17 years or something. I've been working as a clinical psychologist in sex. And it's wide. Like there's a lot of stuff that you do in the field when you work as a clinical psychologist in sex. But I am super interested in sexual function, sexual pleasure, sexual enjoyment, sexual problems. And I've been running services in the NHS, um, dealing with those things probably for the last 13, mm-hmm. 13 14 years. Um, and I'm just so fascinated in it because sex is really political. Sex therapy is really political. There's so much of it that 
kind of brings in different elements of what I enjoy about being a clinical psychologist. So, you know, you get to work with couples, you get to work with families sometimes, because if it's about young kids and their relationship, teenagers and their relationship to sex, you get to work with gender politics, you get to work with other aspects of kind of intersectionality, um, you get to work with stigma and shame, and you get to be the person in a therapy context who people sometimes bring their kind of biggest worries to that they haven't spoken mm. to anyone else about and mm. that they are terrified about. And the other aspect of it is that sexual problems are also really easy to solve. So it's very rewarding doing sex therapy because change happens very quickly and easily. So it's just the perfect job for me. Do you believe that to be true then? Yes. The, the, how so? So as we'll probably get to talking about today, and and really the reason I wrote the book is that much of the problems that people bring to the therapy room, whether they attend alone or with a partner um, about sex, are actually not problems within them or problems even within their relationship, but problems outside of the therapy room. So how we see sex Mm -hmm. as society. So desire is a perfect example of that. It's the reason I wrote the book. We really, as a society, are just kind of grossly out of kilt with how we understand desire and how desire really works. And that's the reason we've got 35% of women in the UK worried that they're not, they don't have any interest in sex. And 15% of men in the UK, yeah. So it's not because 35% of women in the UK have a problem with their desire. It's because... um, as a society, we don't understand desire. So they believe that they do and they're distressed about it and their partners probably believe that they do, but they don't have a problem with it. And that's how sex therapy often works very quickly is that much of the work that we do is about saying, well, where have you got this idea that X? And actually Mm. the science tells us this, if you go away and you do this thing differently, you will see something different happening. And that's what happens. So typically I work with couples for six sessions, Um, And it can be longer. People can, if privately, especially people can see people as long as they want. But you don't really need more than that. It's relatively quick work. And considering the the potential impact that sexual problems can have on personal well-being, on relationship satisfaction, on relationship stability and security, it's it's wonderful to be able to create that change all these kind of ideas that we have or these habits that we fall into that end up causing us yeah to be stuck in a rut I suppose but also I was really interested about this idea of these unrealistic standards these ideas of what we a we think we should be doing or b what we think other people are doing and comparing ourselves against that and you talk about this three times a week people get fixated Mm -hmm. on yeah, that's that's a big one. And I still don't know where that idea comes from, but I, I can tell you it's like super prevalent and it's what everybody says. When I ask them how often do they think they should be having sex, people always say two to three times a week. And it's not borne out by anything that actually happens in people's like sex lives that we know from worldwide data. Um, but it's what people consistently say. And it's the it's like this benchmark that they hold themselves to account two and think well we're not having enough sex um it's fascinating for two reasons one because we know that it's not actually what's happening and that you know the average uk adult 
um, in my age bracket, so kind of 35 to 44 year old age bracket, having sex about twice a month. And that a third of people in and out of relationships under 44 are having sex, um, not at all, in, you know, in the last month. So uh, it's a lot less than people mm. think that it is. And they're using that as a way of feeling guilty and bad about mm. how their sex life matches up to their friends. But also what's fascinating about it is that frequency is just such a red herring when it comes to a measure of how good our sex life is because it doesn't really tell us anything about how much pleasure we felt, how life expanding it was, how completely absorbed in it we were versus distracted, um, how connected we felt to the other person and our bodies. We could be having sex once a week, once every two weeks, that actually pushes us further and further apart from our partner and actually isn't that pleasurable and is quite formulaic and is reducing our desire over time. That's not good sex. No matter how often you're having it, um, you'd be better to have it once a month, once every two months, once a year, where it's the best sex you've ever had. We've skipped massive bits of your research, but your research about two things about the orgasms and the gender divider that and also oh, yeah. the stuff the stuff around oral sex i'm wondering which we've got time to talk about let's try and do them both okay um which do you think you'll have to rein me even? in i'll waffle on yeah so let's talk about the orgasm gap so for people that don't know about this um we know from several large-scale research studies that when um when people masturbate, uh, people of all genders masturbate, they can usually orgasm in like a couple of minutes at a rate of about like 98% of the time. So there is no gender difference in ability to masturbate and time to orgasm. So there is a bit of a myth that women's orgasms are trickier than men's. And it is not true because we know that, you know, if, if there's masturbation, it's all the same. However, when you put people together you see an orgasm gap emerging. So um, the biggest gap is between when women and men have sex together. And then what happens in that type of sex is that men's orgasm usually stays high at a similar rate to when they masturbate, so about 98%. Um, and women's orgasm rates drop to about 65% with a regular partner and 18% with casual sex, with hookup sex. So... Uh, the same thing doesn't happen with women who have sex with women. So the, there isn't the same orgasm gap. It's something like 86% um, of orgasms and the same with men who have sex with men. So we know that the orgasm gap is about what happens when men and women have sex together. And that is very much rooted in the sexual script we talked about earlier. So the idea that sex is all about penis and vagina, which although plenty of women enjoy, only 20% of women can orgasm from that. And, um, you know, if, if women think for a second what they do when they masturbate, it probably looks quite different to what is the main course of sex with their partner. And therein lies the problem. There's a nice segue, the research about um, oral sex and, you know, the ideas that men versus women have about obligation and, yeah. Yeah, so this is an interesting one as well. So um, we know that men enjoy... And this is, uh, it's, I'm talking about heterosexual sex here, um, not to, um, to disadvantage other sexualities, but rather that's where most of the sexual problems lie. So that's why I'm privileging those conversations. Um, 
we know that men enjoy giving oral sex more than women enjoy giving oral sex to men. So we know that to be true. But we know that the rates with which women uh, give oral sex are twice as high as the rates of men returning it. Now, some of that is about the patriarchy. Some of it is about the idea of serving other people and not getting your own needs met. Some of it is about um, our societal ideas of vulvas being something shameful, something we're embarrassed about, worries about body confidence, of people getting up, up and close and personal with our vulvas. Um, but it's something really interesting to notice about um what we know about who does what to whom most often and what that tells us. Thank you so much. It's been a, such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like there's a, so much more that we could talk about, but maybe we can do that at another point. And yeah. Maybe. It's, it's been, been great. Thanks so much for having my me. My pleasure. My pleasure.